0: Welcome to COG, where we discuss topical issues in women's health. This week on COG we're talking about perinatal mental health and we're joined by Joe Black, a perinatal psychiatrist who works in the NHS in the UK. I caught up with Jo at the annual scientific meeting in Auckland, uh, and she's spearheading the rollout of perinatal mental health services across the UK. My name is Rachel Nugent, and I'm an obstetrician and gynaecologist at the Sunshine Coast University Hospital in Queensland, and I'm pleased to welcome my co-host, Ted Weaver.
1: Happy New Year to all our listeners. We're a bit late with this episode because of Dr Nugent here spending too much time on the beach, unlike me, who's been at work.
0: Thanks to our listeners who've taken their time to give some feedback on the podcast. I appreciate that the sound quality has been a bit of an issue for a couple of the episodes and I'm working hard to try and rectify that. A big thank you to Penny Wilson from the Bits and Bumps podcast who sent me some hints and tips to try and help improve the sound for conversations in o g If you'd like to give us some more feedback, uh, you can get in touch with me at cogconversation at gmail.com. Uh, or on the Facebook page, or via our Podbean website, cog.podbean.com. They're also available on iTunes, and please do share us widely. This is a free resource intended for anyone with an interest in women's health. Right, well let's get to it. So the Maternal Deaths in Australia report prepared by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare looks at the triennium from 2012 to 2014, and it looks at maternal mortality across Australia. And they found that unlike most other causes of direct death, uh, deaths by suicide are uh, stable, highlighting this as an area that can potentially uh, be improved to further reduce maternal mortality.
1: Certainly in Queensland, when we look at Queensland, the data we looked at through the Queensland Maternal and Perinatal Quality Council, it's really affirmed that suicide deaths were increasing. What was noteworthy was that there were a lot of late maternal deaths that were due to suicide, that these are not typically classified as direct or indirect maternal deaths. Contrastingly, though, WHO has recommended that all maternal deaths within a year of pregnancy be classified as direct deaths.
0: What I thought was a little bit controversial was that in 2011 and 2012, the WHO recommended that all maternal suicides be classified as direct deaths, as direct maternal deaths. But I was unaware that in 2012, the National Maternal Mortality Advisory Committee, with advice from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists, came to the conclusion that puerperal psychosis is extremely rare. And therefore, in Australia, deaths in situations where there was clear evidence of a pre-existing mental health disorder were to be regarded as indirect deaths, whereas suicidal deaths in the setting of previously undiagnosed severe mental health issues illness with no pre-existing condition would be regarded as direct deaths. Yeah, but I
1: think the reason the WHO took the position that they did was because uh, nothing that had been done prior to their making that change had made any difference to the incidence of suicide, and the incidence of suicide was actually rising. So it was really done, I think, more to highlight the problem and to recognise the direct link between pregnancy and adverse mental health outcomes for women. And so I think we can spend a lot of wasted time arguing about the minutiae um, of whether it's a direct death or an indirect death. The fact is that it's a death of a woman of childbearing age. And if you think about the social capital that's invested in a mother, both in a developed country and even more starkly in a, in a uh, less well-developed country, I think we can ill afford to lose any mother, particularly to what could, what could be a recognisable and treatable disease. Generally, women who are pregnant will be seen by a range of health professionals, all of whom should have the skills to recognise mental health issues in a in a woman under their care.
0: Mental health disorders affect 10 to 20% of women in the peripartum period. So it's an enormously important issue, but one that not a lot of resources are directed to, one that I think we mainly rely on primary caregivers to address. And I think what's what was highlighted for me by this report uh, was there were five maternal deaths, direct maternal deaths attributed to suicide in the triennium reported. There are a couple of case vignettes which just highlight where there are opportunities to care for people better. So the first case vignette was a hanging death of an at-risk young woman. She's an adolescent woman in her first pregnancy, hanged herself in the second trimester of her pregnancy. She had attended two antenatal clinic visits and had not had mental health and or domestic violence screening tools administered. She had a long-standing history of depression, self-harm and social issues, including domestic violence. The practice guideline from the National Maternal and Perinatal Mortality Advisory Group strongly supports the premise that all pregnant women should be offered screening for mental health and domestic violence issues. At the first antenatal visit, explaining to all women to ask them about domestic violence as a routine part of antenatal care, and to inquire about each woman's exposure to domestic violence, and also to make sure that that screen is done when you're alone with the woman.
1: And I think that also highlights, again, the need for continuity of care in maternity care, especially antenatally, where caregivers can develop rapport with women and can often identify these sorts of issues, which can otherwise remain covered up because of people's shame or embarrassment or whatever about bringing those sorts of issues forward. It also, I suppose, emphasises the importance that midwives being able to um, visit women in their homes antinatally where they'll often get a good sense of, of a woman's uh, social supports and her social context which is significantly lacking in care that's delivered only within the confines of an antenatal clinic in a hospital. There's still a lot we don't know about this. Mm. Um, And I think that's again, attests to the lack of resources that have been um, deployed to um, recognise and treat and research this problem.
0: Mental health is uh, still in a lot of parts of the world a taboo issue uh, and it's one that's becoming less so in the Western world. But I think we're just beginning to break the ice on the, the sort of research that can be done into the causes of ill mental health and, more importantly, the the ways to remedy
1: it. Yeah, it's interesting that it's coming up to um, the awarding of the Australian of the Year and it's interesting to reflect that two recent Australians of the Year, one, Patrick McCockey, was a psychiatrist. Mm. His undertaking was to improve the resourcing of mental health and also Rosie Batty, who was um, a woman who was awarded for work about domestic violence following the homicide of her son by his father. Uh, A very sad case indeed. But um, it's interesting that, that in the last five years we've had two recipients of, in some ways, our most prestigious national award with Mental Health Association.
0: So on that note, let's talk to Jo Black. Today on COG, I'm joined by Dr Jo Black. She's a perinatal psychiatrist who works with the NHS in England and is one of two directors rolling out the national perinatal mental health strategy in the UK. And she's come to the Renscog meeting this week to present and talk to us. And um, I'm really happy that you're joining me here. Thank you very much. So, look, Jo, your talk yesterday was really interesting. I guess what's striking is that 20% of women develop a mental health problem within a year of, of their child's birth. That's a vast number. And then the other striking figure that you countered that comment with was that 40% of the UK has no mental health service at all. yeah. And so I'm wondering, there was some obstacles to to getting it started that you'd realised this was a deficiency for a very long time in your career. Yeah. Uh, what was the trigger that, that changed things that, that got it moving? Well, I think there was a couple of things. Um,
2: Rachel, I think what, one of the things that became really clear was that us making the case, the clinical case alone was not going to be enough. Um, because the evidence, the clinical evidence, has been stacking up for a long time about the impact of maternal mental health on the mum and on her children. And that on its own, that clinical kind of evidence base wasn't going to be enough on its own. Um, what we ended up with was a sort of a perfect storm, really, of the clinical evidence base, some really good economic data. And women who've been through the experience of having perinatal mental health problems joining in with the campaigning and using their voices and their stories in a really effective way at all levels, so right from governmental roundtables to uh, speaking at conferences, doing lots of training, speaking to local commissioners of health, so I think it was those three things, the the lived experience, the medical, clinical experience, and the economic data, um, which uh, eventually um, and I, I will say that uh, there's been campaigning for for very many years, and we just reached a bit of a perfect storm with those three things together, have made a real impact, and, and have come to the attention of national government. And that's why we've got some money to roll out the program.
0: So the program, it sounds like some really exciting initiatives. Yeah. There's a lot of new services that are opening, and that yeah. must be a massive... Um, task to oversee. Yes. A lot of the the basis of the program is talking about the provision of evidence-based yeah. perinatal mental health care. Yeah. Can you explain to me what that service looks like?
2: Yeah. So what we know is that if we speak to women uh, at the time of booking and our, we train our midwives to do that really well and to have a very open and honest mental health conversation at booking, women tend to be really open about describing their their mental health questions or their mental health concerns. Um, The key to this program is that early detection and, where possible, prevention or early treatment. It's not about letting women get really poorly, um, suffering and struggling, and then trying to reactively treat their mental health problems. Of course, we have got to treat mental health problems when they emerge. But there's a a lot of evidence base that tells us which groups of women are at high risk. And so we want to just be really um, thoughtful about Getting in alongside those women, doing really good planning with them and their families to try and keep them well. So our ambition is to work on that real prevention agenda alongside midwives and obstetricians, which is why the partnership between us and RANSCOG and, you know, midwives is so crucial and GPs. We can't do this on our own and we wouldn't want to do it on our own. It wouldn't be appropriate. It's about getting that whole team approach around a
0: woman. And you mentioned that whenever you speak at conferences, you always have someone with lived experience yep. of a mental health yep. issue yep. with you. Like I that's have. That's how it works. Yes,
2: and I have today. So I haven't announced that because I want the delegates to be slightly taken off guard, but there is a woman coming to, to, to do part of my presentation along with me today who's a local mum here from Auckland who's had her own experience of perinatal mental health problems. Yeah, because
0: it's so important to hear. It's what mom. you
2: remember. Yeah. It's what you remember. It's what... Uh, changes opinions and changes minds and open up, opens eyes and deals with stigma, actually. It's what deals with stigma because there's a perception about what someone who may have a mental health problem looks like. And when you're confronted with a real, feisty, articulate, you know, uh, can-do woman in the room that blows that out of the water. So that's a really important part of what we do as well.
0: We've talked in an earlier episode, we looked at new onset paternal depression Yes, in the year prior to birth and during pregnancy as being a risk factor for preterm labour. And so paternal depression is affects the family unit and, and affects the physiological state yeah. of the pregnancy. Within your initiative, is there space for treating men? It certainly changed the way I... Council women now, when yep. I see them, I ask how their partner is, how their mental health is. Yeah.
2: Um,
0: is there space for that in your initiative? Well, we've got
2: some really great um, uh, organizations in the UK uh, looking at men's mental health and working with alongside us. So uh, there's a peer support charity I work with, and they have a, a dad's peer support worker working within the team, supporting men and supporting dads. There's campaigning organizations that we're fully supporting, which are really Prioritising that shining a light on the mental health of of new dads, um, we're not there yet. So what we've got is funding around maternal mental health, but as part of our um, core function, an assessment of the whole family has to be part of that. So not just dads, but other other siblings in the household and how are they going and, you know, and doing. Um, so we're not, you know, we're not there yet, but we're certainly taking a whole family approach, and um, certainly my clinical practice. I work with both partners, same-sex partners, heterosexual partners, whatever. Uh, that's The baby's been born into whatever the family looks like, and mm. it's important that you understand that and try and take that into account.
0: Yeah, recognising the family unit. Yeah, um, I, I think you put up a really interesting quote yesterday, which I didn't get a snapshot of, but it, it said... Um, yeah. I, I want to be treated as a whole person. Yeah, essentially, I I hate going to the health service and getting dissected up into the bits that make me me. I I want to be treated as a whole person. I love
2: that quote as well. Yeah. because I thought that's what we do. We we send you over here to think about the baby. We send you over here to think about your your mental health. We send you over here to think about your own pregnancy issues. We might send you down the corridor to see someone about your pregnancy diabetes. But actually, what women's experience is, oh, I just want to feel like I'm a whole person. Um, and, uh, and if, and that whole team approach I talked about earlier, it's, it's not about handoffs or referring someone from one service to the other, but actually having a, a package of care that makes complete sense and ties up. And we talk to each other as healthcare providers. So the woman knows that if she shares something with me, she doesn't have to tell that story. In other places. That that information can be shared in a really respectful way with her consent. So so everyone knows the situation.
0: So another interesting slide that you had showed the cost of perinatal mental health problems in the UK is estimated to be about eight point one billion pounds per year. Yeah. Now the thing that blew my mind about that is that twenty eight percent of those costs relate to the mother. But seventy two percent, nearly three quarters of the cost is is related to to the child. Can can you explain that?
2: So that's looking at um, the child as uh, an emerging young human being with all its own health needs and concerns. So the mum who's had good mental health care it's less likely perhaps to have a baby who spends some time in the special care baby unit because her medication's been sorted out before and, and you can avoid prescribing medication that maybe wouldn't have been helpful for the baby at birth. The baby may then go on to have, need to have increased checks from uh, the midwife and from the health visitor, from the GP, may go on to have, if mum's really struggling with her mental health. Everyone's going to be much more vigilant. Children's social services may need to get involved alongside that family to put support in, maybe a family support worker. Down the line, you know, we know that children who've been parented by in a family with a significant mental health problems can go on to have their own mental health problems down the line with anxiety issues, speech and language delay, um, some educational issues. So again, as that child approaches preschool and into school, may need additional support from from community pediatric services or from education services, children's social services. So it's all of those costs, those now for me as a clinician, I'm interested in the human costs of that child, perhaps more so mm. than the than the monetary cost to that care. But what the monetary cost does is it's hooked the it's hooked the um, the politicians and it's hooked in the people who are responsible for spending money in the public purse so we can get other drivers to get some change in place by putting a monetary value alongside that for me the experience of the mother and the child getting really you know having a great start in life feels more is that the center uh, of what al- we do? yeah it's aligned to my values but i'm happy to mm-hmm. to kind of kind of celebrate that report because it it has really been a driver for us getting more services
0: so things got a little heated, it felt like, during your talk yesterday when you talked about the Australian and New Zealand, both independent mm-hmm. reports that look at maternal mortality in our respective countries. Uh, you made a few really good points that I think were heard by the audience. The main issue was around the reporting of late maternal death yeah. uh, related to suicide. Yeah, What what aren't we doing in Australia, that like you're doing in the UK?
2: So I was interested in that because you're used to the reports from your own country, aren't you? You're used to the way things get done at home. So it was only coming to prepare for this talk that I you know, looked in detail at the Australian and the, on the um, New Zealand system. And I was interested that the maternal death is the death up to day 42 after birth. So that's the maternal death that we measure in the UK as well. Now, I don't know where in history the UK decided to look at late deaths, but it's a genuinely good thing because women who might still be on intensive care after a massive hemorrhage or sepsis could easily die after the 42nd day, but not be counted. So it's not just mental health deaths maybe may be being missed. It may be, you know, a whole range of deaths that could be being missed because we're not keeping that longer picture in mind. The women are, you know, in, the, in those immediate post-birth weeks are both m- mentally and physically more susceptible to a range of health care problems. So the late deaths is interesting. Four-fifths of the UK suicides occur as late deaths. Now, given that there were, I think I counted, thirty-six women died across Australia and New Zealand in those two reports. If we suggest that that's a small fraction of the actual number, it begins to sound really catastrophic. Actually, that there's a bunch of of families who are losing family members, and they're not being counted. They're not being heard. Their, their voices are not part of this conversation at the moment because. They happen to die after the forty-second day, so you know it's another driver for change. And I think if Ranscock has got any influence to bring to bear, I know that the people who work on the mortality reports really want to do this because I spoke to some of them afterwards. Yeah, uh, and you know, and that's that's been something they've been pushing for as well. I think it would just be really helpful. I think the methodology for doing that collection then becomes much more complex and problematic. So I don't underestimate the size of the task. If there was a commitment to do that, it would be a really significant piece of work. But I think it would be worth it.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's an important group of women who yeah. are just being missed. And how can you ask questions about why and how and what can be done to prevent it if you just don't even know what the problem is to Exactly. Address?
2: You don't know the size of the problem. And I would also say that you know we're talking about this now in the 21st century but if I kind of go back a couple of generations you know our asylums in the UK used to be full of women who'd been ill mentally ill in pregnancy and spent their life in institutions this is a problem which is age old you know Mm. Hippocrates wrote about postnatal mental illness this is a this is a not a developed world problem this is not a 21st century problem it's not because women are you know working too hard and not concentrating enough on their ovaries it's none of those things you know some of the some of the things you make your hair stand on end that i hear about you know working women or you know women not prepared women you know women shaming and women blaming is not the way to deal with this issue it's to say this is an age-old issue we're just naming it now and we're bringing it out of the shadows and we're not making it shameful anymore so that we can deal with it like we deal with every other healthcare issue.
0: And taking the stigma away from mental health is really important to Absolutely. allow us to look at it with the same scientific model that we've applied to the uterus and the ovaries and the kidneys and the brain.
2: Isn't it interesting that I don't know, isn't it interesting that we find it hard? We find it hard and I you know, and I know this from visiting women who are admitted postnatally with mental health problems they don't get flowers and balloons the way women who get admitted with physical health problems do Mm. when they're coming out of a mental health unit they don't really know what to tell their family and friends about where they've been or what they've been through so we've come away but we haven't come all the way Mm. we we haven't we're not there yet there's heaps to do Mm. Um, but it's a really interesting time in history to be doing it
0: yeah, absolutely, to be part of that change and yeah. see that there's so much more to do, but at least it's it's starting to shift. Yeah. yeah. So what what do you think about the WHO making suicide a direct maternal death? Well, I think that's really helpful,
2: um, and I think that, again, applying that across our maternity reviews takes a bit of thinking about, about how we do that, uh, because one of the slides I'm going to show later shows that the lifetime risk for women being admitted to a psychiatric unit, the, the lifetime risk, the highest risk is in the first week post so it's not these are not incidental deaths some of them are of course that you know there will be an incidental kind of number of women who may have taken their lives but actually those are tiny numbers compared to the the um the impact that pregnancy has on a woman's mental health and the postnatal period has on a woman's mental health so if we're gonna say that you know a complication such as diabetic ketoacidosis is a direct death because uh it was caused by her gestational diabetes, but the cause of her death was diabetes, well we've got to apply the same rigour to mental health, we've got to say that if she dies by suicide because her mental health problem was exacerbated by her pregnancy, that's exactly the same thing as a diabetic model. So let's just give parity of esteem to mental health in that conversation, and do the same as we do for the other physical, the cardiology causes, the you know the endocrinology causes of death. Just make it the same, and then that makes it really straightforward and not not different in any way.
0: So then there's also issues in Australia certainly about reporting of maternal death after termination of pregnancy. Yes, um, because suicide after first trimester termination yeah. um, is a leading cause of. So
2: United. that was really interesting to me, and I, I, again, we don't report in the same way in the UK. So that's that was fascinating to me to discover that. Um, and again, I, I hesitate to comment too much because I, I know the termination service in the UK and how women are assessed in terms of their mental health before they um, are accepted for termination, and then the access to counselling available around that period of time is part of the contract for uh, termination of. Pregnancy service provider. I don't really know how that translates across to an Australian system, um, but it seems to me to be something of great interest and great concern. And you know, those women really um, what a terri- what a terrible thing. So, so I that, I'm new to that conversation, but I think that those services that provide termination services or those referrers who refer in need to be aware of this data and really thinking about what their duty of care is
0: yeah do you think we have adequate tools for for screening for mental health issues it it seems to me that um, we when we're counseling women we need to have really adequate validated tools to to pick up the people who are at the highest risk to stream them so what, I, what I'll what
2: i present later today is a series of kind of red flags that we should all be looking for to pick up women who may be at risk. But those red flags are validated in women in pregnancy and postnatally. But the, the question that you ask around women post termination, I don't think those tools, to my knowledge, exist. That, that kind of, a, you know, how would you assess a woman around that period and and around those issues. So I don't think we can directly lift across some of the Mm -hmm. other tools, but they might be a good starting point.
0: Yeah, and I think what's been highlighted for me in in looking at that data around termination and suicide is there's so much research that needs to be done. Absolutely. And the taboos around abortion um, are really affecting our ability to provide good quality care because there's excellent people providing excellent services who, uh, you know, have to deal with all this social aspect of what they do yeah when actually we should be looking at the science of how do how do we find these people how do we send them to your service yeah
2: but also how do we understand so we need to be working not just in a medical model but we uh, need to understand society and where where those the pressures and the and the you know um the factors that are contributing to the sit with young women and what is it in our society that's that's kind of driving um, those young women, particularly seeking a termination service, to then take their own lives afterwards. I mean, that's just a a story that all the dots haven't been joined up in that story for us to really understand what that group of young women um, have experienced. The Confidential inquiry is a great place to do it, but what that's doing is looking at small numbers and then women who you can't then ask. And what would be great would be to ask women who are having termination services You say it's a research question, isn't it? How how that experience, you know, finding out about their lives, finding out about their mental health. So
0: there's a much better idea about the range of women accessing those services and what their stresses are and what their risk factors are. Yeah, because I I actually wonder when I saw that data, you know, how many of these women who are accessing termination are also in the lowest socioeconomic groups? How many of them are exposed to DV? How many of them have... You know, drug and alcohol problems, mental health issues, other factors that will feed into it. Um,
2: How many of them are pregnant by, by, by rape or non-consensual sex? Exactly. You know, all of those issues. So if we don't know, if we, haven't, if we haven't heard those stories, then we're not going to put the right interventions in place. So it's a fascinating, tragic tale, but, you know, ripe for someone to, to really grab that issue and try and make a change. And what an amazing thing that would be to do, uh, to understand that. and. Mm. And perhaps provide better support for those
0: young women. Mm. Are you able to talk just a little bit to the tools in, because I know you work perinatally and we've kind of moved away yeah. from your
2: area of expertise. So, um, uh, yes, yeah, so I'll be presenting later. The Confidential Inquiry into Maternal Deaths in the UK has really tried to condense down some of the themes that were present in women who took their own lives. Um, so that we can think about those. And some of them are the ones you might expect, such as evidence of psychosis, evidence of a rapidly changing mental state. And some of them are issues that we might not have thought of. So a recent estrangement from the infant is a red flag event. New thoughts of your incompetencies as a mother is a red flag event. And you could postulate that a woman who's preparing for her own departure separates from her child Mm. i certainly know that women who've been to the edge have told me that they they've tried to make it easier for their child by that estrangement and that distance between them and the child i mean awful for Mm. them so there's a series of these red flag events that you know if a woman has is has a pervasive sense of hopelessness a rapidly changing mental state thoughts of self-harm particularly violent thoughts of self-harm any evidence of psychosis estrangement from her infant, new thoughts of her incompetencies as a mother, any of those should be a flag to any healthcare provider, thinking, this is not a woman with the baby blues. This is something more significant. And the best thing you can do is just be really curious about her story and ask her to tell you a bit more about that. One of the biggest challenges we have in that is our time management. I hear it time and time again. It It takes time. It takes time. And I would say to an obstetrician or a GP or a psychiatrist... If you are worried about somebody offering them, you know, saying, can we have a double appointment or running over on that occasion, it will save you time in the long run. Because a woman who goes on to become more ill is going to need a lot more intervention by mental health services or is might not make it. Mm -hmm. So going back to my first point about early intervention, prevention, early detection, treating early, trying to prevent all that human suffering but also is also good care and it's the most time efficient way of working. So if you spend an extra fifteen minutes and get a really good history and get a good plan in place, you're gonna save time in the long run.
0: Yeah, prevention certainly has been a key thing. So Joe, thank you so much for taking some time to My pleasure. talk to us on COG today. My last question, what do you think is the most important issue in women's health that needs to be addressed in the next five to ten years?
2: Okay, well if I would if I answer that, um, gosh, that's a really good question. If I answer that from a kind of a UK perspective, I'll probably give you a different answer than if I answer it from a global perspective. So I'll take both. Okay. So from a UK perspective, of course, my 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 head is absolutely committed to what I'm doing in terms of the maternal mental health agenda. We have our plan and. I I feel really passionate that I want to... We had a map yesterday which was multicoloured and a good map would be turning that map green. Mm. And it's only useful, if we turn the map green, it's only useful if then we recognise that outcomes are changing across the country and that we're really changing the the expectations for the next generation. For me, that would be an amazing thing. And I genuinely believe investing in healthy mothers is the best way to change the outcomes for the next generation um, coming behind us. In terms of global outcomes for women, I just think investing in our youngest women, in our girls through their teenage years, keeping them in education, keeping them out of child marriage, you know, enabling young women to achieve their potential. I think if you do that, then their gynecological health, their mental health, their social health, their financial health will all lead from that. So so that's huge. And I don't really know what the answer is, but I think that the every woman, every child, initiative is a great starting place really trying to shine a light on those young women who around the world whose life is very different
0: from from what it is here in New Zealand or what it is in the UK. Big dreams I like it. I know. I, like it. <laughs> I very much hope to catch up with you one day when that map is all green. Yeah thank you. The UK is lucky to have uh, such a, a talented and charismatic person to <laughs> be carrying the light forward so thank you very much for joining us. Oh thank you for having me. It was great to talk to you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Next up on COG Journal Club, and as always, you can access the references for the articles on our webpage, cog.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes, Conversations in Obstetrics and Gynaecology, and if you'd like to email me any questions, comments, or smart remarks, you can reach me at cogconversation at gmail.com. Now it's over to Ted for Journal Club.
1: So what caught my eye in Journal Club this week was firstly a meta-analysis that was published in the Journal of Affective Disorders. This is not, I might say, a journal that's high on my list of uh, regular reading, but I was struck by this article was looking at the prevalence of post-traumatic stress disorder in pregnancy and after birth, and it was a systematic review and a meta-analysis of numbers of studies that have looked at this topic. And I suppose research in this area has been bedeviled by defining exactly what PTSD is, and so what the, the... criteria that they used to look at studies that they would include would be that the studies uh, included patients who'd been diagnosed according to dsm 4 criteria, where symptoms of PTSD were grouped into three clusters, and the first of those was that they were re-experiencing the traumatic event through nightmares, intrusive thoughts, or flashbacks. The second one was they had persistent avoidance of reminders of the event and numbing of general responsiveness. And the third was increased arousal, such as hypervigilance, irritability, difficulty concentrating, and other emotional dysregulation. And so their criteria for diagnosing PTSD was that a person must have had at least one re-experiencing symptom, three avoidance symptoms, and two symptoms of arousal. And so I thought the consistency that they they applied to this when they included various studies in this um, meta-analysis was quite interesting.
0: So the study looked at a couple of things. It looks at a bunch of prevalence measures, including the prevalence of PTSD across time, and it also did some work comparing the validity of interviews, which are considered the gold standard for diagnosing PTSD, with patient-administered questionnaires. The issues with PTSD in the published literature are that it occurs both antenatally and after birth, but it has a wide variation of prevalence rates between studies and across countries. And this meta-analysis showed the same thing. Uh, So PTSD has a prevalence of somewhere between 0 and 40%. It's highest in women with a history of nausea, vomiting or hyperemesis, fetal anomaly, or a history of childhood maltreatment. So community samples showed a prevalence rate of 3.3%, high-risk samples had a prevalence of 18.95%, and this difference was significant. So high-risk samples are people who have experienced a difficult or traumatic birth, had an emergency seizure, had a severe fear of birth, or a history of physical or sexual violence or childhood abuse, and a number of other measures. What I found really interesting was the way they looked at the prevalence of PTSD over time. So when a woman was four to six weeks postpartum, it was 5.77%. She experienced an idea at about three months of 1.44%. And then at six months, the prevalence of PTSD was 6.79%. So rates at six months were actually higher than they were in the first four to six weeks postpartum. Now the authors postulate that possibly this is because of the sleep deprivation and hormonal fluctuations that occur in the immediate postpartum period extending out to three months and then by six months women have their personal rhythm back and have more awareness of their symptoms of PTSD. I think the biggest thing for me was that this is a really common problem. It affects 4 to 6% of women at some point, either in their pregnancy or postpartum, and I think it really warrants screening and treatment. It at least deserves a bit more attention in our clinical practice.
1: I think that's certainly true, and I think even if we can't screen everyone, I think we certainly should be um, screening women who are more at high risk. Interesting that, as Rachel said, women generally will report an incidence of between about 4 and 6% in pregnancy and after birth, and that that'll be certainly much worse in high-risk samples. And I think there's a big role to play in having some process for recognising women who might be at risk, and I think they're the women who perhaps have an unexpected outcome. For instance, they might have their expectations in pregnancy set upon a straightforward labour and birth, and who have an emergency for whatever reason, who have an operative vaginal birth, who have a baby that's in the nursery unexpectedly, have an unexpectedly long length of stay, who deliver their baby early, and they may have difficulty processing the events around the time of birth. So I think there's a big place for recognition of those women, offering those women early intervention, having them debriefed by both senior obstetric and midwifery staff, by engaging with the women by making sure that there's a coherent follow-up plan when those women leave hospital, by making sure that they're followed up adequately, both by um, general practitioners, perhaps also a known midwife that they may have um, seen during the pregnancy. And then also, I think hospitals have to really look at having someone who perhaps is an intermediary between, say, the psychiatric department and the obstetric department, who's got some inherent skills in recognising deteriorating mental health the emergence of PTSD and recommending some sort of intervention that that would be useful for these women to try to preempt problems further down the track
0: mm, it really speaks volumes to the multidisciplinary team approach that you need to take with mental health because as obstetricians we can uh, debrief the events around a birth or, or or concerns that the woman might have regarding her pregnancy, but we have limited skills in managing PTSD and we really need our psychiatric colleagues' uh, assistance on that front.
1: I think it's interesting that even if we can't formally see all women, I think there's a lot of evidence to say that that self-reporting questionnaires are quite a useful screening tool in initially identifying these women. So I think that's something that we could really look at. I think we perhaps haven't been as as good as we could have been in maternity care in in looking at people's overall satisfaction with our care. I'm not suggesting for a moment that people go to work to do a bad job, but in some ways we think we're doing well, but we may not be. And I think we could be better at seeking women's feedback upon their perceptions of their care, how they think they've done, and most importantly, how they think they've recovered and how they've made a transition to successful motherhood.
0: I think the time you most uh, commonly see this issue of PTSD impacting your clinical practice is, um, as an obstetrician, is in the mode of delivery decisions. So a woman experiencing birth trauma because she had a, a very traumatic vaginal birth requesting a caesarean section as a treatment for the birth trauma that she experienced. And that uh, you know may or may not be suitable for that woman, but just getting the baby out is only one part, trying to treat the array of symptoms that comes with PTSD uh, is another very important factor for managing these women adequately.
1: Mm. Take-home practice point for me is that we need to have better ways of screening for women who might potentially develop PTSD. So that's got to be better recognition of events that happen around the time of birth that could have an adverse effect on a woman's mental health and intervening early to address those concerns for the mother, and having regular follow-up and a coherent mental health plan. Which segues nicely into the next study, which we alluded to before, which is entitled Risk Factors for Suicide Attempt in Pregnancy and the Postpartum Period in Women with Serious Mental Illnesses. And this was in the Journal of Psychiatric Research, published in October 2017. And they made the point that suicide attempts in the course of pregnancy and the postpartum period have different risk factors and special attention to risk of suicide is needed during pregnancy for women with severe mental illness and a history of miscarriage, alcohol or cigarette use and young age and depression in the perinatal period.
0: This is a large retrospective cohort review looking at admission to mother-baby psychiatric units over a 10-year period. There were over 1,400 women included in this study and its major outcome was self-reported suicide attempt. It sought to assess risk factors associated with suicide attempts and it looked at three groups. There were women with no suicide attempt, uh, suicide attempt in pregnancy or suicide attempt postpartum. What I found really sobering about this paper is that 11% of women admitted to a mother-baby unit during their first year after birth attempted suicide, antenatally or postpartum. So we're looking at an incredibly high-risk group.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was important that they said that suicide attempts are most mm-hmm. likely linked to addictive behaviours and a history of miscarriage. They're the suicide attempts in pregnancy, which suggest pregnancy-related stress and or difficulties getting involved with the pregnancy, whereas postpartum suicide attempts could be more correlated with mood regulation and younger age. And so that goes back to what we talked about before, that addictive behaviours during pregnancy and past obstetric history are essential elements to explore. So we really need to know what women are doing, and we need to, again, look at our alcohol and tobacco screening tools to make sure that women are offered cessation programs during pregnancy. And we need to involve these women with appropriate mental health professionals if we're concerned about their overall mental health.
0: Yeah, really interesting to me was the association between antenatal suicide attempt and previous miscarriage. So for a woman who'd had a history of miscarriage, 28% of those women had a suicide attempt versus only 12 or 13% in the other two groups with a p-value of less than 0.01. So over double the number of women that had attempted suicide antenatally had experienced previous miscarriage. Uh, I think this agrees with some other literature and it's an area that really needs more investigation. Relationship between first trimester loss, uh, including termination of pregnancy and suicide, is looking to be a a real relationship that needs to be further explored.
1: There's always a concern with these studies, is how generalisable are they and how applicable are they to our population? This is a, a study done in several large cities in France, including Paris and Bordeaux. And we wonder whether these studies are applicable to Australia with our fairly diverse geography and different way of life and way of looking at things. But it's interesting that the incidences of the various diseases that they discuss in here are broadly similar to what would be applicable to an Australian population. So it's tempting to think that this is applicable. Certainly it's it's something that's germane to what we're doing and I I think it's a worthy study even though it has all the problems of a retrospective study.
0: Yeah, there are some common themes, but it is difficult to generalise these results to the general population. I think it's a good overview of risk factors for high-risk women. This is a really highly selected group. These women were admitted for at least five days to a mother-baby unit with mental health issues because it took them five days to be able to administer the questionnaires and collect the data. So I think... Uh, It's important to be aware of the risk factors for suicide attempt in postnatal women, which as Ted said, are reduced maternal age, psychiatric diagnosis of a major depressive episode or recurrent depression. Take-home practice point?
1: Take-home practice point is that we should be vigilant and certainly if we have any woman with depressive symptoms particularly, and even more concerningly if she's had a history of substance abuse, we should be looking very carefully at that woman, screening that woman carefully and um, looking at interventions that we can do during pregnancy and afterwards to improve her overall mental health. The last study that we looked at is entitled The Benefits of Paid Maternity Leave for Mothers' Postpartum Health and Wellbeing and it's evidence from an Australian evaluation. Uh, and this was published in Social Science and Medicine in April of 2017. And for our overseas listeners, it's important to point out that there's been quite a deal of political discussion and debate in Australia about the provision of paid maternity leave. I think that this is something that's akin to a basic human right, but the Australian government has been dilatory in providing a scheme that is useful and fair and affordable for women. And so it's interesting, we know that if women are in some ways in a precarious position in the first year or so after they give birth to their baby. One, they've got all the demands of motherhood during that time and also for women who've had to perhaps interrupt an interesting and potentially lucrative career, the decision to return to work can be very difficult and I think this is something that I'm sure thousands and thousands and thousands of women struggle with. um, Well, and for women...
0: In low-paid trade and service jobs, the pressure to get back to work just to mm. pay yeah, the rent put bread and put food on the bread table, bread on yeah. the table exactly. is even greater. Mm. Yeah. because because just to give some background, uh, the Australian government introduced the paid parental leave scheme in January of 2011, and it provided most mothers employed before birth with 18 weeks of pay at the minimum wage. Prior to this maternity leave in Australia. Uh, was protected, 12 months maternity leave, unpaid was protected for any woman who'd been in her job for 12 months or more, but employer-paid maternity leave was mainly a provision of private companies and public sector workers and mainly given to women who had permanent or part-time contracts, more skilled women uh, with higher educational levels and generally uh, higher socioeconomic status so it was thought that the introduction of the paid parental leave scheme by the government would really level the playing field and increase access to lower paid women improve their access to to maternity leave to remove that pressure to return to work the goal
1: of the australian scheme which was 18 weeks leave at the minimum wage rate was to enhance the health and well-being of mothers and their babies and there's obviously some evidence that this sort of leave can benefit mothers' health postpartum. But the reason that this study was done was that the potential health benefits of implementing a nationwide scheme have rarely been investigated. What they did was two cross-sectional surveys of mothers who were matched on their eligibility for paid parental leave. They looked at 2,347 mothers who were surveyed before the introduction of the scheme and 3,268 women who were surveyed after the introduction of the scheme, and they looked at the scheme's health benefits for mothers and the extent that this varied by pre-birth employment conditions and job characteristics. And what they found was better overall mental health and physical health among mothers after the introduction of the paid parental leave scheme, although the effects were small. And so, Rachel, as a um, mother who's been personally engaged in such schemes, what do you think about this study?
0: I think pay maternity leave is incredibly important across the population for a number of reasons, one of which is improved mental and physical uh, health outcomes in women. It's not that surprising to me that if women are supported financially during what is otherwise a, a fairly intense time, I wouldn't describe it as getting paid money for nothing. I'd describe it as getting paid money to be at home raising a child i didn't suggest it was no 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 i know you didn't but um never suggest that i think a lot of people think that maternity leave is kind of a big holiday uh, and it's really not while it is a joyful and amazing time uh, it can also be stressful and dark and isolating and difficult and so it doesn't surprise me that alleviating financial pressure for people improves their physical and mental health outcomes. The authors did acknowledge that the gains are relatively small so the instrument that they used generally they talk about clinical significance with a difference of five or more points between populations but the gains between the pre and post parental leave Groups uh, showed a difference of 1.35 in the mental health component score and 1.16 in the physical component score. That's less than the 5 deemed to be clinically significant. But the authors argue that since it's a population-based study, small incremental gains across a population represent a considerable preventative health gain.
1: I think that's valid, and and I think really when you look at what the government's providing at 18 weeks at the minimum wage, that Australian policy is certainly not as generous as other countries who offer replacement wages and longer time off that certainly some um, European countries. And so the public expenditure, whilst it's significant, is not overly generous. And again, any sort of health outcomes in these women, if we're improving them, is likely to be of long-term benefit to the country, who, after all, wants its citizens to be productive. So I think that... It's interesting that this does show improvements and perhaps we need to do yet more research on this and it would be interesting to see what effect it has on the partners of the women who are bearing the children. What sort of impact would it have on men's health? Would it be similar because of the emerging evidence about the effects on men's mental health that having a baby can affect?
0: Interestingly, just on that economic argument, uh, they did show the reduced the numbers of mothers who returned to work early. Uh, so the pay parental leave scheme reduced the number of women returning to work between one and three months postpartum, which is considered an early return to work. But it also reduced the numbers of mothers who left the labour force entirely. So being paid to be at home with your baby enabled you to stay at home long enough and then make a decision to go back to work if that's what you wanted or needed to do and rather than the economic decision that lots of women make to just leave the workforce because it's cheaper to be at home with their child than to pay daycare to go and work the interesting thing to me was that the most significant difference in mental and physical health scores occurred in women when they broke it up by employment type so it occurred in women with permanent contracts and women in manager and professional roles and so it's likely that these women were already uh, receiving paid parental leave from their employer. So they had access to privately funded parental leave. And then the, in addition to that, they received the government's paid parental leave, which was essentially a top-up. Now, at the time, these women were uh, dubbed in the media as double dippers. But it's really interesting that those women who had a little bit more income than what they normally would have had, had the biggest health gains as did the casual workers. So women whose employment is generally unpredictable, the casual workers also did better in both mental and physical health scores. And the authors hypothesised that this was because these women were uh, receiving a regular income as opposed to a haphazard, Mm. unpredictable income that they would normally receive in their working life.
1: The other thing that I thought was interesting was that the improvements in the mother's physical health was thought to be most likely due to mothers delaying placing their babies in formal childcare. So this reduced the the immediate likelihood of contracting infectious diseases. And I think that's an important point. And then they hypothesised that the improvements in the mother's mental health probably arose from the reduced stress resulting from the secure predictable income provided to mothers during their paid parental period and the reduction in time pressures from an early return to work and i think the other benefit that they'll often accrue to babies from this is that mothers are more likely to breastfeed for longer now i think given the association of breastfeeding and overall pediatric health um, i think that's yet another reason to encourage this
0: yeah and it's not just breastfeeding the health and well-being of infants and young children is closely dependent on family routines Resources, quality of relationships and all of these are shaped by mother's mental and physical health. So just having access to your mum, not just the fruit of her bosom, but yeah. yeah. Spending time with your mum and, and having all Yeah, the social the, capital
1: that, that that comes from that
0: Yeah, developing those connections and mm-hmm. um routines in, in, and mental. understanding it's really important to make us happy, healthy human beings and the happy and healthy are so closely linked and I think we're just beginning to work out how that works. Mm, I agree. Take home practice point?
1: Take home practice point is that it's another area where I think doctors can have a role in in advocating for sensible health policy and so I think for governments to suggest that they should roll back or or stop paid parental leave would be a, a retrograde step So I think we need to make sure that we advocate sensibly for this, that we advocate for also, I think, for fathers to be involved in the care of their children within the first few years of life, emphasising the importance of that, and also highlighting the need for further research in that particular area. Um, And also the importance that society should put upon the health of its younger citizens. Next month on COG we'll be talking about contraception and this is such an important thing for provision of good women's health. Often an area that's neglected and often it's an area that people think they know everything about it when in reality they don't. So we'll be discussing these matters with an expert in the field and also as usual have our journal club looking at interesting issues in this important area. Signing off from Bye from me.
0: Bye now.